Hello and welcome to Delete Delete Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Jim Thornton is Executive Creative Director at VCCP London and one of the most successful and respected advertising creatives in the UK. Jim began his career as a copywriter at J. Walter Thompson London back in the late 1980s and his career has taken in lead creative roles at GGT, TBWA, Mother, Leo Burnett and Arnold KLP before he joined VCCP London in 2012. Yes, the ad industry is fond of an acronym. He's also run his own advertising consultancy and even launched the world's first death magazine to help people cope with bereavement. I chatted to Jim about the secrets of great copy, the importance of humour in beer commercials, the ad campaigns he's most proud of from personal to nationwide, why memorability matters, writing improv ads for actor Martin Freeman before he became famous, why his favourite newsletter comes from a jeans manufacturer in Wales, and how he's helping to nurture creative talent in Stoke. Creativity plays a vital role in good communications, and I was really excited, stoked even, to talk to Jim about what creative inspiration we can all take from the advertising industry. Enjoy the podcast. Jim, welcome to Delete Delete Engage. Hugh, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. I have to say, I've only been on one podcast before. Uh, and it was never produced. So I hope that's not a bad omen for this one. Well, let, let's get that one step further this time. So, Jim, the, the mission of this particular podcast uh, is to help make comms at work more impactful and engaging. And as one of the country's most successful and experienced advertising creatives, I wanted to talk to you about how we can inject more creativity into our communication so people delete less and engage more. So to kick off, um, I wonder if you could share a little about how you got started in the ad industry and maybe some of the defining moments in your career to date. Crikey, that's all quite a large topic, isn't it? <laughs> I slightly fell into the business because it seemed to me to be about as close as I could get to still being at university and get paid at the same time. I'd grown up loving John Webster, loving characters in advertising, uh, loving the fact that you could make people laugh in an advert, I think, uh, and just create memorable communications. And I think that, given the subject to this, I think memorability is quite important. I also got into it because it was about as far removed from my dad's job as a doctor as I could mm. possibly find, you know. People often ask me how I, how, how I make so many decisions and I would say it's not that difficult because no one is likely to lose a leg because I made the wrong decision. Um, so I think defining moments in my career have nearly all been around people, actually. I was really lucky in my first executive creative director at JWT, a man called Alan Thomas, who's sadly no longer with us, who was br a brilliant manager. And he was an interesting example of of. Uh, a creative director who had never been the greatest creative himself, but he knew how to get the best out of people and was a wonderful man to work for and just created a great environment in which uh, for a period at JWT in the late 80s, great, great work was produced. Uh, I'm thinking back to the great Purcell skinhead commercial, which kind of completely changed things. Some fabulous work for Smarties, for Polo. And then... Subsequently, I went to GGT to work for Robert Savile, uh, who obviously 
is now better known as the founder of Mother, but he was the creative director there with J. Pon Jones. Uh, and Robert changed my career immeasurably in many ways. I find businesses fascinating. I find business problems fascinating. I'm a big fan of detective novels. I think a lot of what we do is a bit like a detective novel in that you tend to follow clues towards the right answer and then have to take a bit of a lateral leap to actually get to the right answer. I mean, I can remember being laughed at uh, at JWT because I wanted to go and meet a client um, and to go around his factory and see what he did and to understand his business. Um, and when I went to work for Robert, Robert just said to me, he said, do this however you want to do it. He said, whatever you think is the best way to do it and the kind of work you want to do, you just do it. There are, there are no, there should be no rules in this business. Uh, uh, and that was a kind of liberating thing for me. Um, and enabled me to start producing probably the best work of my career, I should think. Um, on the basis that most of us only have a hot period you know, we're a bit like a striker. Like Robert De Niro in the 70s. Robert De Niro. I, I, I am very like Robert De Niro <laughs> in the 70s, yes. Then Trevor Beatty came in when Robert left to, to um, found Mother. And Trevor was also brilliant, again, because he just wanted you to get on with it and trusted you to get on with it. And I think the greatest thing a creative director can give you is trust and but be there when you need them basically. And that was very much the way Trevor operated. And he let me be the creative director of what was then the biggest ever account win in advertising history, which was the whole integrated NatWest business. Um, and that we created a fabulous campaign that went right through the right the way through the business. It was all animated. We created different animation styles for each business unit that went right the way through the line. Um, and that then subsequently got me a job back with Robert at Mother. And Mother was amazing in those days. Uh, there was about 30 of us and we just did the work that we wanted to do. But that isn't to say that it wasn't commercially smart. In fact, it was one of the commercially smartest places I'd ever worked, I think. Um, in the sense that you sat around a table with the client, you talked about what their problem was. There weren't really defined roles. I was as much a planner and an account man as I was a creative and a creative director. Uh, and you, you developed everything with the client. It, it required a lot of trust from clients because nothing was ever written down. There were no core reports or anything. I learned a lot there about understanding a client's business and empathizing with the client's business in order that you can then persuade them to buy something that they might otherwise have not felt comfortable with. And then obviously ending up uh, working with the master that is Darren Bales again, who, um, who I was his creative director at Mother back in the day. I am living proof of be nice to them on the way up because you sure <laughs> as need them on the way down. 
So you joined VCP in 2012, is that right? 2012, yeah. November 2012, so 10 years. Yeah. Now, for those listeners who aren't as familiar with the ad industry, um, I believe you started out as a copywriter. Yes. Is that right? Very much copywriter. And and, and I think that aren't most sort of ad creative teams made up of copywriters and art directors, is that right? They are, yes. So it was Bill Birnbach who put copywriters and art directors together. Mm. Bill Birnbach was the founder of... Uh, Doyle Dane Birnbach, in which was the great advertising agency of the 60s in America that kind of transformed the business and started to produce work that was culturally relevant rather than just shouting at you to buy things and which had wit and charm. Uh, and Bill Birnbach was a man who kind of who took copywriters who used to sit on one floor and would write a headline and some copy and would then send it up to another floor to be illustrated by Arista. Uh, and Bill Birnbach basically said, why don't we put them in the same room and I'm sure something more interesting will come from that. And so really it comes from two people sitting around talking absolute rubbish <laughs> uh, until something sort of instinctively you go that's interesting and then you'd start I would start writing whether that in those days you know there were only four media in those days there was it was it, the answer was either a tv ad a radio ad a print ad or a poster uh so you would start writing to that uh and the paths I guess the disciplines diverged only really when it came to execution. Once you'd got an idea and then once you were executing, the art director would be very much more in charge of choosing a photographer or an illustrator and designing the ad. We didn't have designers in agencies in those days. We had old-fashioned typographers. Um, but yeah, so the, the parts, I mean, I was very much a writer and not an art director. So, and in those days, writing copy, involved sitting with a typographer who would have worked out with the art director how much copy was required and I had to write very exactly to a space uh, and literally I would be writing on tracing paper and they would be scratching stuff out and I'd having to be rewrite it it was a real discipline it was a real discipline yeah wow um now advertising is is ultimately a communications medium yeah um how would you describe your philosophy on communications and creative communications in particular um i i guess my philosophy is still pretty rooted in the kind of advertising that i've always loved from a child onwards which is a lot around wit and charm and making people feel something i guess uh, and memorability. Um, I mean, I nearly always start a project by going, what is everybody else in the sector doing? Because we're going to do something completely different. I think, you know, you need to make a brand feel singular and different. And I think, yeah, I think my philosophy is, would, could largely be summed up as charm. Now, why that sounds like a quite a sort of, in, insipid word I suspect but what I mean by that is and I think you and I talked about this before you know I remember as a kid the clean easy man who sold cleaning products used to come to the door to flog his cleaning products and he didn't uh, just bang on the door and shout 
buy my cleaning products. You know, he told my mum jokes and flirted with her and asked after her family and and was generally incredibly charming to the extent that she then felt obliged to buy some of his cleaning products, whether she wanted them or not, probably. Uh, and kind of had an affinity to the Clean Easy brand for a very long time because of him. And I think you always have to imagine, a bit like radio, actually, and I'm a big lover of radio, that you're talking to another person rather than you're just throwing stuff out there. And I think it has to be personable. It has to be rewarding. I think that's another really important aspect of this is you need to people, leave people feeling like you've added something to the sum of their life, whether that's just because you've made them laugh, you've made them cry, uh, you've made them want something perhaps that they didn't realise they wanted. Mm. I think memorability is so important. So it's kind of, when you start to come up with an idea for an ad, is that one of the things that you're influenced by or thinking about is, can we make this memorable or is this something else that is going to be in, in influencing your thought process? No, I think that always has to be uh that has to be a primary. There are so many things that you kind of have to think about, particularly these days, because you have to think about how things will work in different media. You have to think about how things will work in much shorter time lengths. Um, but yeah, memorability, distinctiveness, that it feels different. I mean, if I take the nationwide campaign that I've worked on um, for the last seven or eight years, that was very much about making them just initially, because they didn't really have a great deal to say, was making them feel very different to a bank. Uh, and I remember as part of the pitch to Nationwide, we produced a reel of all the tropes and cliches of bank advertising. Because Nationwide, of course, is a building society and not a bank. Though. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Yes, I should have pointed that out <laughs> at the beginning. Yes, Nationwide is a building society and therefore a very different organisation that comes from a very different place and with a very different purpose as well. So it was very much about making them feel different to banks because it felt to us that there was no perceptive, perceivable dis difference in their communications and that they had just become like everybody else. Um, and quite often, as we did with Nationwide, a way to do that with a brand is to look back at their heritage and to look back at where they came from, what was their purpose when they started, and to try to revive that, which again we did. I mean, Nationwide was, a, was founded by the people, for the people. It was founded by a bunch of probably... It's a little bit contentious, but probably a bunch of immigrant labourers in the West Midlands in the 19th century who, uh, and in those days, they were unable, very like today actually, were unable to save enough money to buy a house because of their rent. But even if they had been able to save enough money to buy a house, uh, they probably would have been denied the opportunity by the banks who had a vested interest in protecting house ownership from the masses because house ownership entitled you to a vote. Right. And if you didn't own a house, you couldn't vote. Uh, so these guys just got together and basically realised that if they saved as a group of people, then they could lend each other money over a longer period of time. And they tended to come together to 
just for themselves and then they would disband once they had all bought their plot of land and built their house. So we went back to that idea of of the people, for the people about and and being a building society that catered for those things that mattered, basically. And that was where the idea of using people to talk about, literally just to talk about the very personal things that mattered to them. Yeah. What are some of the other great examples of of the campaigns that have made you proud uh, or even admired from afar during your career? Oh, crikey. Uh, I mean, I would say the entire canon of a man called John Webster, who was responsible for an incredible variety of advertising out of BMP, Bars Massimi Pollitt, back in the sort of probably 70s, 80s, and maybe, and probably a bit of the 90s. Um, he did, there's a fantastic ad for The Guardian called Points of View, which is just a brilliant piece of thinking condensed into 30, 40 seconds, which is also just a brilliant use of film. And I would recommend anyone to go and look it up on the YouTubes. It's just a brilliant evocation of how looking at things from a different point of view can give you a totally different perspective. And that was kind of a one-off that he did, but he also created stuff you know, from my childhood, the Cresta Bear, uh, the John Smith's Arkwright campaign. And they tended to be campaigns that just ran and ran and ran. I mean, I loved that. I loved the John Smith's Jack D work as well as the, the John Smith's work um uh with peter k because mm. beer commercials give you that license for humor really don't yeah. they? beer commercials were always brilliant and I you mean, were involved in holston pills yeah, i was well, involved right? in holston pills which was really which was a really interesting one massively divided the advertising community at the time but that was so i i ended up doing a campaign for holston pills using characters from the far show which mm. is a british uh, sort of sketch com- comedy series mm. featuring Paul Whitehouse and Mark Williams and Carolina Hearn and Simon Day uh, and Charlie Higson. Uh, and it was a brilliant, it was a, a groundbreaking sketch series at the time because as the name suggests, it was it worked on the basis that most sketch shows, the sketches went on far too long and would be much better if they were very short. Mm. So all I did was I basically watched every far show sketch that they had made over and over again until I understood where the joke was in every single character. And then I wrote scripts, script after script after script around that character, but with Holston Pills as a central part of the script. Mm -hmm. So every script was focused around Holston Pills, but it was true to those characters. I loved that campaign. And again, you know, one of the great things about this job is I get to sit in, I got to sit in an office with Port Whitehouse and Charlie Higson and write with them and learn from them and watch them perform. Uh, and that was just one of my favorite things about being a copywriter was that working with people who are better than you. I mean, the other, the other campaign that I did, which I loved, it is another kind of example of that, was a campaign I did at Mother for QTV, which was Q Magazine launched a TV show, a TV channel. And we were asked to launch it. And we created a character, uh, Ben Mooge, who um, was my 
partner at the time on that project. And we created a character called the Danster, who was a man who tragically still believed in his mid-30s that he was going to be a rock star uh, and still lived his life according to a set of principles, well, mainly one principle, which was three chords and the truth, who we thought was pretty reflective of the Q magazine readership. Which was a music magazine. A music magazine, yeah. which of which I was an avid reader. Yeah. And that was a great example of how, as a creative you create something and then you bring in people who are more talented at certain aspects of it than you are and who will then transform it into something that you could never have done on your own. Mm. Um, and it's one of the reasons I love being at the beginning of the process rather than necessarily at the end of the process. And I have directed, but I find that not as fulfilling as being having an idea and then bringing other people in to make it even better. And that campaign... We wrote a whole load of scripts that the client signed off. We then brought in a chap called Graham Linehan, who created and wrote Father Ted and Black Books and um, Big Train and the IT crowd, amongst other many other things, and who brilliantly had been a music journalist in Ireland before he became a comedy writer. And we brought him in as director he clearly knew, literally knew the character and wrote a load of scripts as well, which were much funnier than ours. Uh, we then cast the then unknown Martin Freeman as the character. And Martin literally was the character, actually, in a quite frightening way. He lived that character. And we were then lucky enough to get... Um, a lighting cameraman who had worked with Ken Loach and um, had sort of learnt how to work with people who improvised. Uh, he then, the lighting cameraman, then went on to win an Oscar for The Hurt Locker and United 63, I think it was. And I remember one, there was there's one ad which is set in the back of a cab uh, in which... Uh, Martin's character is talking about his influences, basically. And the, we couldn't fit, Ben and I couldn't fit in the cab, so we were sitting in Denmark Street in a cafe. And suddenly the door burst open and Graham came in. And he's quite, he's quite an irascible character, Graham. And he came in, I'm not going to do an Irish accent, but he uh, he came in going, he didn't tell me that he'd got to wear a seatbelt. He's supposed to be a rock and roll or a wannabe rock and roll. He wouldn't be wearing a seatbelt. And we're going, well, there's nothing we can do about it, Graham. He's got to wear a seatbelt. It's, it's the rules. And one of us just went, what What if, you know, what if he just suddenly realises he's not wearing the seatbelt and it kind of freaks him out? Anyway, off they go. We didn't see anything until we were sitting in the edit suite with the rushes. And Martin had improvised this amazing piece where he's sitting in the back of the cab talking really comfortably about like I'm a rock and roller I like to live life on the edge you know if it's not if I'm not living on the edge I'm not living and if my music's not whining people like hang on a minute this seatbelt isn't in hang on stop stop and then he puts the seatbelt in and just goes and you just go that you know that we didn't write no that. no that was just that's kind of evolved into that it evolved, thanks to the talent of the people involved yeah, right yeah and and we won a DNAD gold for a 10 second ad that we made up on the spot in a music shop 
in Denmark Street because there was a machine in there that we were all looking at going, what is that? We didn't, we had, none of us had any idea what it is. And again, one of us went, wouldn't it be funny if Martin takes it back and goes, I bought this from you last week. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and he did. And that yeah. was it. That yeah. was the ad. Yeah. And yeah. The, the end line was that thousands who've made it for the millions who haven't, QTV. It's, it was a salutary lesson as well that creative people can have big egos, but actually subduing your ego to allow other people to be brilliant is a very important part of it. Mm. And I guess, you know, if you're working um, for companies like VCP or Mother, you're highly likely going to be surrounded by creative talent. Yes. If you work in a corporate environment, maybe far less so, but very often they're still tasked with coming up with creative campaign ideas. Now, you mentioned earlier that you like being at the start of the process. Yes. That, that idea, um, I know at VCP, we've got a triangle of truth. We've got a methodology yes. to help us come up with that idea. But how, you know, what sort of tips would you have to kind of encourage people or help people to come up with ideas that could be the start of something quite special? I think what's fantastic about the triangle of truth is that I think all the best advertising has always has a truth at the heart of it. And that truth is brilliantly summed up in our triangle because the truth can can be a product truth. It can be a kind of human truth, like about how you use a product. Um, it can be a truth about the brand or about the market. But ultimately, I think looking for there being a truth, a kernel of truth at the heart of it, whether that is... So for, I guess... For example, another fantastic campaign that, you know, probably one of the greatest campaigns of the last 40 years is the Levi's campaign, which mm. I desperately wish the I The 501 had. Yeah, campaign. the 501 campaign. And all of those were based, they were ideas that came off a very simple product truth. There was always at the end, you know, whether it was the one about the condoms and it was about the... the I can't remember what it was originally. It was like a key pocket. Yeah, the, the, the small the, pocket. The small fifth pocket. Within the pocket, yeah. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and it was about a boy going to buy the condoms from the, from the uh, chemist in a sort of Midwest town, and it was brilliantly filmed. Um, and then he goes to take his girlfriend out, the girl out, and, of course, she's the daughter of the guy who was at the chemist. <laughs> and the end line was really simple. It was something like, you know, the... the the key fob pocket uh, created in 1850 and abused ever since, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think basing your ideas on some kind of truth or insight, as it's also known, uh, is really important. I think imagine that you are writing for, for someone else, whether that's your mum, your best mate, your boss, but imagine you're writing to another human being rather than trying to create something in the ether, as it were. But I think people should, it, it's really hard because I think creativity is all about confidence. Uh, and all businesses are creative because all businesses have been created out of an idea that responds to a truth, to a human, to a need or to a great product innovation. Um, and in order to keep a business successful, business people need to keep having ideas. So I think there is a, a mystique and a myth around creativity, which is about, which is being currently utterly destroyed by chat GPT, if I'm honest. Um, but I think 
most people can do it. I mean, if, if you find it hard, just sit down and write what you have to write as a letter to someone. Mm. Mm. Because I think then you will write from the heart. And I think that's the other thing. Um, I think, yeah, that, that yeah. would, that's... So, I mean, talking about writing, I mean, you you know, started out as a copywriter. I mean, I guess that's writing is something you're naturally good at. Yes. Um, Literally the only thing I'm naturally <laughs> good at, sadly. Um, what is the secret of good copy? You know, what makes good copy, would you say? Uh, I think clarity and brevity are really important. But what makes really good copy is, I mean, this is just, it sounds such a platitude. And a cliche, but it is giving your audience some reward. I whether it's something that interests them, something that engages them, something that makes them laugh, makes them smile, something that they remember. Um, I think the best example I can give of kind of customer engagement, I think, is there's a brand called Hyatt Jeans, uh, which are made in Wales in Cardigan. Uh, and that brand was created by a guy called David Hyatt, who actually used to be a writer in an ad agency. But he has created a phenomenal brand through nothing other than customer engagement. Through He does a weekly newsletter. And actually, what's brilliant about his weekly newsletter is less what he tells me about his own company, although his own company's story is great. Um, funnily enough, talking of Levi's, the story of Hyatt Jeans is that uh, he was looking to start another business after he'd sold his previous one. And he went back to Cardigan, where he was from in Wales, and he realised that Cardigan was full of people who knew how to make really good jeans because they used to make them for Levi's, but the factory had closed. So his purpose became, we're going to get this town making jeans again. Mm. And he sends out a newsletter every week in which... He just put six or seven things that he has found links to seven, six or seven things that he or people in his business have found interesting on the internet. And those things can be anything from self-improvement, self-development. They can be creative things. They can be books that he recommends. And he's constantly rewarding you for reading that newsletter. I never read that newsletter without getting something out of it or finding something interesting. And I think too often emails particularly look like someone has literally fallen asleep on a keyboard and press send. Uh, and I think, again, it's because people don't put enough of themselves into it. I think if you are passionate about things, you will find an audience who are passionate about them. I mean, that's how social media is, has grown to the extent that it has. I actually hate the word engage, but it's true. You have to engage your reader. It's no good just giving them dry information. Make me smile, you know. It's the best customer service I ever have is with someone I can have a conversation with, basically. And yeah. and reading an email should be like reading, almost reading a conversation with someone. And yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you you're talking a little bit about 
emotions there and generally you know we you've mentioned humor a few times and you've obviously you've talked about charm what about other emotions so you know i think advertising and it's it's, it's an influencing medium right yes. advertising and humor is one way of influencing people but you can also make them angry or sad or you know to because you're trying to encourage them to act sometimes aren't you and buy yes. something or do something yes how, how do you go about bringing those sorts of emotions which are slightly more challenging emotions to maybe tap into uh, anger, I think, is a, is a well, as, as John Lydon once presciently said, anger is an energy. energy. And I'm not sure that writing anger onto the page is particularly influential, but using anger as an energy to write will undoubtedly lead you to be passionate about something, whether it's writing or wrong, whether it's, uh, you know, being angry that that your product isn't as well known as it should be or that a service isn't as, as well known as it should be. But I think, so I think anger is a difficult one to, to harness and use. I mean, I think the primary emotions are, sadness is an interesting one. Personally, uh, and probably contrarily, I blame the death of Princess Diana for the fact that we know, we, we now British advertising suddenly became obsessed with make, making people cry rather than making people laugh mm. because the entire country seemed to have a kind of collective nervous breakdown and uh, at her death and and suddenly we all became much more happy about crying. Mm. And it's really interesting because I remember enjoying a lot, and a lot of it was rubbish, but there was some really great advertising for Hallmark greetings cards in the mm. States. Mm which was very emotional. And actually, the Americans had always done that kind of emotion much better than us anyway. Uh, but there were some really beautiful Hallmark ads. And I remember trying to do them when I was at Leo Burnett because we had the business in the States and we tried to do some for the UK and it was just really difficult because people just didn't really want to engage. Mm. Um, John Lewis sort of changed all of that. But again, but that was because they did an amazing job at capturing the truth of Christmas, you know, particularly with that, the first one, the long wait was just amazing. And that was, that was, at, you know, that resonated so much with people. So I think, again, it comes back to emotional truth, actually, whether that's an emotional truth about your company, if you're writing from inside about whatever it is you want to write about. But I think it's, it has to fit what you're writing about. I don't think you can, it's hard to manufacture it, mm. if that makes sense. And it does, yeah, yeah. Um, you've been involved in a few sort of uh, pioneering moments throughout your career. I think you were involved in the world's first death magazine, is that uh, right? Yes, that was, yes, uh, which died brilliantly after one issue. Um, that came from, it actually wasn't my idea, uh, but it was a brilliant idea. It was brought to me. Um, and it was very serendipitous in that my wife at the time had just lost both her parents in the space of 18 months to in separate uh, car accidents. And we, and we were really struggling, and she particularly was really struggling, because there is so little resource. Death is kind of... The last great taboo, I think, in terms of people talking about it. And what was really difficult was finding any resource. You could find magazines about all other life 
life-changing moments that would help you. There were plenty of books about every other, you know, if you're getting married, having a baby or whatever, there's mm -hmm. magazines and books coming out of your ears. But death was something that was really difficult. And there is a hell of a lot to navigate at a time of bereavement that is really difficult um, from, you know, legal, probate, bank accounts through to the more spiritual aspects of death, the rituals surrounding it, and grief, which is a very strange and probably the strangest of all emotions, I think. Um, and so it seemed to me that the time was ripe for, for a magazine that eloquently and sensitively helped people through that. Um, but actually the magazine was a loss, was, was supposed to be a loss leader for a much bigger idea behind it. But we wanted to create um, online memorials that would be password protected, but which all friends and relations could have access to. Um, and we, to stream funerals on the basis that these days families are all fragmented. I, um, yeah, I, I joined a streamed funeral uh, with, with uh, Australia quite oh, recently. You, right. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really beautifully done, actually. Yeah. And that was one idea. And then to create a permanent memorial where people could upload photographs, upload videos of people and could write eulogies and testimonies, which would create a permanent uh, memorial to that, to that person. And that was the idea was that the magazine would kind of help us promote that. Uh, but yeah, how do I put this delicately? It was called Eulogy and it was, and the first issue was really interesting. I have to say I stand by it now. It was a really good issue. It was very, there were, there were several problems with it. One is that as usual, I fell in love with the idea without checking out my partners. Mm as closely as I probably should have done. So um, a much more current and, should we say, thriving initiative is VCP Stoke. Yes. And which is something you, you co-founded. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. I, it, so VCP Stoke came about from a, you know, I started in this business in the mid 80s and advertising was a much more of a kind of social, socio-economically diverse industry at that time. You know, a particularly creative departments, creative departments would be filled with accents from all over the country and, uh, and people from all different backgrounds. And it was a fantastic cultural melting pot, which I think only helped and added to the quality of the work that was coming out. It occurred to myself, uh, I suppose about six or seven years ago that I looked around and it felt to me that creative departments were becoming, had become far less socioeconomically diverse and that actually um, it felt like they were predominantly inhabited these days by people from the Southeast who either came from London or around and about London. And there were very obvious reasons for that. And one of them primarily being cost the price of entry to London, as we all know, is really difficult. And it takes a creative team on average 18 months to get a job in a creative department. So that's 18 months of doing placements, internships. And back then, that often weren't paid. They're now all paid the London living wage. But back then weren't paid. So really the only way they could do it was either having a second job, which was pretty impossible given how hard 
we expect placements to work. And also, um, although it was the bank of mum and dad, basically, which meant that we were recruiting from an ever-decreasing funnel. Allied to that, the fact that actually our industry has been pretty complacent, if not also arrogant over the last 30 years and has failed ironically to advertise itself and promote itself so uh you find that actually if you sit around in any room in any advertising agency in london and ask people how they ended up in advertising 90 percent of the answers will be that they met someone almost usually in london who worked in it and that was true for me even back in the 80s or they knew someone who worked in it they had a friend a relative of the family who worked in it and so we had always relied really on, we've always relied on people either finding us or headhunters finding people to find us. But that talent pool seemed to us to be decreasing uh, exponentially, actually. Um, and the funnel was getting smaller and smaller as London became increasingly more and more expensive for anyone to move to. Uh, so there were two problems, basically. One was the cost of London, and the second thing was awareness of us as an industry. And I talked to Michael Lee, our, um, uh, I'm not sure what his title is this Chief week. Chief Strategy Officer. Thank of you. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Chief Global Strategy Officer. Global probably. Chief Strategy Officer, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I talked to Michael about this way back when I had the first idea, and he completely agreed. And we just sat, and, we, and I called it VCP Stokes. I went, if they, but, but the basic idea was if they can't come to us or they're not going to come to us or they don't even know about us, we need to go to them. But the idea sat on our laptop for five years, six years, because we couldn't work out how to do it and how to make it work. And it was the great irony was that the pandemic gave us the opportunity because it made remote learning and working uh, possible suddenly and, nor and normal and so actually it was during the pandemic which also enabled Michael and I to kind of do proof of concept under the radar with anybody really knowing about it we gathered a, a, a group of like-minded individuals from within VCP around us and we created a, a six-week uh, virtual work experience program and we found a sixth form college in Stoke who were willing to do it with us and it basically gave over six weeks, two hours a week, it gave people an introduction, gave the kids an introduction to what advertising was and the nature of the jobs within an advertising agency, as well as setting them a brief that they would then work to and we would mentor them. And it was amazingly successful. I mean, there was the talent was obvious right from the start. I mean, there were two people in that first session, I think we would have given the job to straight away if we had the means to do it. That was then evolved into doing it with every sixth form college in Stoke, which was four sixth form colleges. And so over the last three years, I think we've reached about 250 sixth formers. Um, and that then evolved into, well, what are we going to do with this talent? So we created some apprenticeships and we rented an office um up there in a kind of in a an old the old spode pottery works building where there are also other kind of small creative 
companies as well. Uh, we've developed a an interesting partnership, a developing partnership with Staffs University, who have probably the best film and TV production courses, as well as now having been the foremost uh, games design course, gaming design courses, and have and have also developed a partnership with Epic, who produced the Unreal Engine, which powers virtual production, which is a huge growing area. Um, and so are producing people who can design the worlds that you can then shoot within virtual production. So there is all of this talent in Stoke. But basically what we're trying to do is create a model that you could move to anywhere yeah. in the country. Um, but we've set up basically, so what we're doing is we're setting up two, VCB Stoke Academy and VCB Stoke VCB Stoke Academy, we're registering as a charity so that we are, and that will be the awareness raising aspect of it. So that will be going around schools and colleges in the North Staffordshire, South Cheshire, Shropshire, West Midlands area, uh, East Midlands as well, um, and raising awareness of both VCP and the industry. Um, and then and by registering it as a charity, it will enable us to get grants to help us do that and to get funding so it become, can become self-funding. Uh, but then VCCP Stoke will become a satellite office for talent, basically. That's fantastic. And, and one of the other things that's come out of that Stoke project is your motorway vistas calendar. Oh, it? yeah. Another of my <laughs> side projects. Yeah, that was again... That was Michael and I spent a, spent a lot of time driving up and down the M40, yeah. which I've spent a lot of time driving up and down throughout my life as a Stoke City season ticket holder. Yeah. Uh, and I just said to Michael one day, God, this is the most, it honestly is the most boring motorway I think I've ever been on. And he went, I said, we should do a calendar that basically is, the, is a picture through the windscreen at 12 different stages of this featureless motorway. Michael being Michael challenged me and said, I bet you I can find 12 features on this motorway. And if we do, we have to turn them into a calendar. And God bless him, he found 11 and invented a 12th. <laughs> the 12th was Pylon Alley, right. which exists, I think it's just north of Oxford. Yeah. Where there was a massive electricity pond. Uh, yeah, and wrote some very, uh, actually, re I mean, I mean, it was done kind of as a joke, but it turned into something that went virally ridiculously successful. And I think it revealed, actually, there is a deep and abiding love of motorways in this country mm. because we all spend an so awful lot of them. time on yeah. them. Uh, and it also revealed that thing, which I think is true of this country, which is, and probably any country, which is if you look closely enough, there is something interesting, whether it's historical or quirky, about most places in this country. So, you know, it was, uh, the joke was kind of on us in the end because an <laughs> awful lot of people took it very seriously. We had some amazing correspondence from people, guy traffic who'd been a traffic officer on it for 30 years and loved it uh someone whose dad had worked on building it you know and then other people who just spent a lot of their time on it um spotting landmarks spotting, that you left off <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah oh no we had a lot of those as well yeah a lot of those brilliant jim that's fantastic now i've got one more thing i'd like you to do yes. before we finish up um i ask each of my podcast guests to answer six 
quickfire comms related questions in around 90 seconds. I won't be timing you, so don't worry, but you up for that? Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. All All right. right. Um, Sum up your communication style in three words. Amusing, self-deprecating. Can I have that as one? Yeah, hyphenated. Yeah. Uh, Amusing, self-deprecating, charming. Of all the comms you receive or emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? 95. (laughs) What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Probably the the Saturday newsletter from Hyatt Jeans. Mm. In your opinion, what's one thing a business can do to boost engagement? And I know you hate the term engagement. I think be true to itself and its purpose, its passion, its belief. And harness the purpose, passion and belief of its employees as well. Great answer. What makes a good communicator? Uh, Someone who listens. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? I'm tempted to say Winston Churchill just because he was clearly brilliant. But I have to say Brian Clough. (laughs) (laughs) One of whose uh, management mantras I uh, resolutely follow. He was once asked what happened if a player disagreed with him. And he said, well, we discuss it for 10 minutes and then we decide that I was right. Brilliant. And a great impression to finish the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com.